From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 238, and today I am joined by film critic Victor Stiff, as well as my son Ephraim. Victor's critiques and work can be found across the internet, including YouTube as well as That Shelf, which is also the, the place where we have our podcasts. And you can also check out his reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down to watch Anchorman. I'm Jeremy. I have seen this film, but not... I think I haven't seen it since it originally came out. And I'm here with... Victor Stiff. And you have not seen this film. I've been aware of this film. I've seen much of this film just in memes and clips, but I've never sat down to watch it from beginning to end. And I'm also with... Ephraim. As you know, because he's been on many episodes, Miss Ephraim, who has also not seen the movie. Yeah, I've not seen it. So now I'm curious before you get to Victor, what do you know about this movie? Do you know anything? Uh, it's a comedy. Check. <laughs> this is like the OG... Uh, comedy of the arts and yes it's, it's just like the flashpoint for the uh so many actors careers it's the flashpoint for uh like the paul feigs and the i'm blanking on his name uh, uh, do you mean paul rudd uh no like the oh the knocked up director yeah yeah, yeah. oh paul apatow judd apatow like all of that this kind of set oh yeah that whole crew we got a wave of just these genius comedians who are just jumping in each other's movies well and the, yeah and there was this it became this real like brotherhood of these weird little comedy movies that don't really happen anymore you know this spawned basically this kind of broke will ferrell's career in a big way and it was also like a weird sleeper hit i think if i remember at the time i remember seeing it not expecting much um, and then remembering, and then it just became this big cult thing afterwards. Uh, well, like you said, it's like it, it just spawned so many careers. Steve Carell is in it as well. Paul Rudd, um, who just got nominated, who got voted People's Sexiest Man of the Year. Good for him. I'm so happy about that. I, that's what happens when you don't age from like 1999, right? It's true. That man has not aged. He's, he's a vampire. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um... And, and so I'm just trying to think of context. I don't want you to know too much going into it. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to spoil anything you know, but you've been seeing memes of it. Because how old is it now? I want to say it's almost 20 years. 2004, I think. So, so close. We're getting there. Yeah. It's crazy to think of that. The only thing that's worth stating more for you, mm-hmm. just because it'll set up some jokes, is that when it came out, um, President Bush was the president at the time. So the movie actually takes place in the 70s. Um, but there's a bunch of references to the, there's a bunch of like in jokes where you're like, oh, they're making fun of the current administration, clearly. So that kind of, that context of time when it, when it came out plays into it a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really spoil anything, but just to give you a reference for why some of those jokes are there or moments are there, because it's now we're. It's funny because at the time, I think everyone, you know, Bush was seen as the Trump of his time, but now it's just like. That was tame. Yeah, we, we wish we could get him back in this day and age. That's just so sad. Yeah, if Bush was running against Trump, Bush would win. No problem. The Democrats would back him. <laughs> he would almost be a Democrat candidate. By today's standards, yeah. Uh, crazy. Uh, anything else you know going into this? Uh, this is also, just from the political humor, this is a great insight into, it kind of foreshadowed what was coming from McKay with some of his great uh, political work. Yeah. What so I that's the I guess that's the big question is what how is it that you haven't seen this film? It's too important. Um, I'm the sort of person where if I'm watching a TV show and I really like it, as I get closer to the end, I slow down and stop watching and don't finish. And it's like there's never a great time to put on an all-time classic. It's like you're not going to put on Anchorman on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Like it has to be a Friday night. You have to have snacks. You have to build up to it. So it's just something I'm always like pushing off for like right. a better this is time. Thursday night at 8 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> that works. I got the right company this time. Well, this is the way to do it. Like this, I will say that it's like there's there's a lot of joy I get out of this. And when I was doing the podcast mostly just over Zoom for the bulk of the pandemic, uh, we would watch on our own. And this is what I missed. Like this idea of just having people come over because I was finding people just didn't do that anymore. People didn't get together and watch movies. Yeah. Especially as you get an out. So it was like for me, the whole podcast was just an excuse to hang out with people and watch movies and kind of just have a good time. Half the assignments I take today is just like, it's people, I just want to talk to cool people. I want to meet interesting people. So I get where you're coming from. Yeah. All right. So we drive in? Sure. Let's do it. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right. We just finished. And? It holds up. Yeah? It's great. Yeah. I don't think I'd heard Ephraim laugh that much since the first time he saw Home Alone. No. <laughs> you know, sure? No. Anyway, we'll get back to that. Uh, it's funny because it's, I mean, it's a 20-year-old comedy, which I know that there's movies that were made in, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, that you should watch now and you're like, ooh, some of the jokes. And there's some in here, but it's also, I don't know, what do you think about... You know, they're definitely playing with, you know, mocking the gender stereotypes. So it's almost one of those things where it's like it circumvents being sexist in any way because it's aware of it. Well, it definitely but, hits different post-2015 in a post-Me Too world. Yeah. And it's one of those films, I think I would compare it to uh, the Borat movies because it's a really, really smart social commentary. But it's so funny and the character's so charming that you're rooting for the person, the film's like really saying, this guy's a jerk. Like, you shouldn't yeah. like him, but you just can't help but like him, right? It's, it's like, it's too funny for its own good. Yeah, that's just it, right? And so even, and, and, and despite the fact that it's just full of, you know, Ben Stiller's cameo, there's just so, it's so full of cultural appropriation as well, which would, you, that would not happen if they were to make this now. Uh, there's also just more options for great casting in those roles anyway that you wouldn't bother going to Ben Stiller and having him play someone that's Spanish. No, they, they actually, they also captured these people when they were young and hungry too, right? Like, that's yeah. the fun of it. Like, just see, seeing Steve Carell go out, go off. I don't know what he was doing, maybe The Daily Show at that time, but it's like, you're seeing that, and he didn't have as much to do as everyone else, but he leaves such a big impression. Like, by the time 2005, 2006, and, like, the 40-year-old version came, came out, 40-year-old virgin came out, 
you'd just be like dying to see this guy get a whole feature to himself. That's just it. Like this is a who's who of amazing comedy actors uh, and actresses. Really, it's like Catherine Hahn's even there. I forgot that she's one of the the friend or one of the other women that works at the news station. Makeup lady or something. Yeah. Um, but it's like Seth Rogen has like the small. He doesn't even have a comedy role. He's just playing the camera guy. Fred Armiston plays Tito. The <laughs> whatever. I'm not even sure what race he's pretending to be. Um, the uh, the guy that owns the jazz club where he plays jazz flute. <gasps> I forgot about the jazz flute. This film, I just I'm praying that there's a director's commentary on it because I want to know everything about it. Like it's so ludicrous. The characters are so funny. Um, like, I don't believe a human being sat down at a desk and wrote most of that script. Like, there's no way anyone's that wild. It's just everyone's playing off each other. They're ad-libbing. And I I just want to know how they all kept it together on set. And how much of it is actually... I, I, it'd be surprising how much of the the dialogue is actually from the script and how much was was figured out, found on the day. Just knowing... Improvised. Improvised, yeah. Because just knowing how, you know, those Apatow sets were run at that time, it was just so much of... Them just going on and going on and people shouting stuff at them behind the monitor. Uh, and just this collection of fucking wonderful idiots. <laughs> there's, there's so many small details that they captured in the moment. Like if you go back to the, the, the back alley brawl with all the, the anchor teams. That back alley brawl? For, I mean, that's the thing when I first saw it. I was like, I can't. I, it was, it's just so bonkers. As silly as that is... At the start of the vlog, go back and look at just the way Vince Vaughn's holding his cigarette, and you're going to have a belly laugh, I guarantee you. Just the little details are priceless. <gasps> the funniest thing about that scene is actually the scene right after it where they're commentating on it. It's like, you killed somebody. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's so meta, because it's like a movie that's this ridiculous, it, it's it's not that self-aware. And for them to comment on like how nuts the movie got, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's so much fun. Uh, what do you think, Ephraim? It, it good. It good? It made you laugh very hard. Yes. It, and just, Fred, like the running gag of Fred Willard's son, and whatever's happening to him, like, but it starts out with him watching German porn at his Catholic school or wherever he is, and then by the end he's holding up a crowd of people. Yeah, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> they should give that guy a spinoff movie. Seriously, I want to see what that son's life is about. Right? Uh, this, I will... I have to watch it again. I just remember when the sequel came out many, many years later. It was one of those sequels that was... I think it was only five or six years ago it came out. Like, it was 10, 15 years after the original came out. Uh, I think it was just one of those films that was almost going to be impossible to live up to the original. But I would, now I want to revisit it because... Yeah, there's no way you're topping this. This is like Michael Jackson topping Thriller. Like, the best you can do is just take it in an entirely different direction and then see what happens, right? Um, they must have just did it because they loved working together. Much like Adam Sandler, like, reuniting his group of friends and just going out and making a, a crappy movie because they have fun doing it. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine them, like, having a story that could actually top what they did in the first one. They waited long enough because I think that was, like, the fear of it as well. It's like, how do you possibly top that and because it's almost, I think, as much as, and there's a lot of jokes that just kind of don't hit, but that's almost fun too about just how hard they're trying, just not, they're just, you know, hitting this thing with reckless abandon and just no fear, you know. And there's something admirable about that. 
Yeah, there's something about having funny people together in the room where they start trying to upstage each other, right? And it's they're capturing lightning in a bottle on set with those talented people. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene when he's doing the jazz flute where he jumps into Christina Applegate's face and starts playing. And they only had about a second of footage before she starts cracking up, but they still put it in the movie because it's so priceless, right? And I wonder, like, how many of those scenes where something brilliant happened, but it was just so funny they couldn't control themselves in the moment? Well, that one sequence when they start to have their rivalry and they're doing the prank calls on her, they're moments away from breaking. Like, you can want, you're seeing them just trying to hold it in. Uh, that Tiss McGee part fucking killed me. I forgot all about that. Tiss McGee is off this weekend or on vacation. <laughs> so many little, little details and things. And like you said, it's like this just inspired, uh, you know, everyone blew up from this movie. Yeah, there's, there's so many golden moments. Um, I really enjoyed how good Christina Applegate was. Like, I, I grew up watching her on uh, Married with Children, but I don't think her of, of her as a comedic actor on the same level as like you know these people who are out there doing improv right like she's just going off the top of the dome um she was really really good um and i'm curious if they brought her back in the second one or if they didn't like how did they write her out of the story she's in the second one i believe i want to say they're married in the second one. Oh boy uh i think well i without ruining anything in the second one what i do remember is i remember they're still together or at least they are at the beginning of it uh and as much as they're not trying to top this movie, I'll just say there's another clash of the anchors. Oh, there's boy. another anchor brawl, and it and it and they're definitely trying to put this one to shame because it's one of those scenes where it's like they have to try to top it in some way. This movie ends with a goddamn bear fight. Like, how, <laughs> where do you go in a sequel? Like, what's left to do? It's true. It ends with a bear fight, a bear fight, and uh, and Brick going off to work for the Bush administration. <laughs> Naturally, yeah, naturally, uh, which is why I had, there wasn't a t- there's a couple little political things in there, but that was definitely the one that had mm-hmm. to you'd understand the context of, of what time this was coming out in. Uh, so many little details. Uh, it's just a glee fest. It's like it's. I, I sit here going, "This is stupid. I shouldn't be laughing. It's just dumb." But I can't even just that stupid moment where it gets cuts to the wide shot and he's got like the most cartoonish erection. Yes. <laughs> Like, you know they sat there thought, sat there and painstakingly kind of thought out, like, how big should this erection be? Like, yeah. Is this too much? Is this too funny? Is it too small? Like, they probably went for, like, maximum laugh factor, like, right down to the millimeter. Well, even just, like, we talked about when we were watching it, but that moment when the dog's got the uh, mouth guard on in the pajamas, I was like, someone had to put that mouth guard on that dog. That was someone's job that day. That's not easy to do. I no. can't even get a raincoat on my dog's. No, that's just it. And it's just, and having, you know, I've worked in a fair amount of comedy in my career. And there's been so many times where I've been on set and we're just looking at each other. It's like, what are we doing? Like, how, why is no one stopping us? Like, this is ridiculous what we're about to do. Yeah, I can't imagine, like, in the moment coming up with something so absurd and just, like, hoping it hits in the edit, right? And that's the other thing with this film. I would not want to be an editor on this because just from the outtakes at the end of the film, it seemed like they went off in like 20 different directions for every line reading. It's like, how do you put that all together? They go on and on and on with these these films. So many of the, like the Apatow, the discs, uh, have just, are, are full of these great outtake reels and blooper reels of just mountains of footage because they just shoot the hell out of it. And they, they did it on film. They're not even shooting digitally, right? No. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah, this is still definitely shot on film. 
So they just go and go. And that's just, they just shoot, you know, if you look at it, it's not the most visually cinematic movie, right? Like most, mostly every single scene is just like, get them into a box and shoot coverage on everyone. And they're often, you know, shooting two cameras at once. And the reason is so they can just riff and just, just, they'll shoot at a whole film roll at once and just get as many alts and takes as they can. Whatever comes to your head. Just go, or whatever you prepared that 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 the, before you got in there. Although I believe it was at the start of the brawl, they shot it like a Michael Bay movie with like the camera kind of like panning around, yeah. making them look like badasses. That was really funny. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it's just a mountain. I can't imagine being an editor would be a difficult task. But they also just they test screen the shit out of these movies, mm-hmm. um, and when they when they do it with, I know one of Apatow's things was always they record the audience. And then sync it up to the movie in the edit suite mm-hmm. and see where the laughs are. That uh, makes and so o- much sense. And they'd often screen, they'd often have multiple different versions of the movie with different jokes um, in different versions. And they'd screen them at the same time to different audiences and compare which, which moment got the bigger laugh here and there. And literally just put it in the, put it in the, one of the audio tracks in the movie so they could like hear the, like watching like a live audience. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard. Comedy does not get the respect it deserves. It's so hard because after you write out a joke and you look at it five times, it stops being funny to you. After you go through the edit and you see it a couple times, it's like to be able to think, how will people react to this when you're you're like sick of seeing it and have it just crackle with energy and just be so sharp and so on point. Like, honestly, some comedies should be getting nominated for, you know, best editing which you never see well people don't realize that the 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 work that goes into comedy like that too Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's weird things like pulling out a joke sometimes like an okay joke makes room for a bigger laugh for the next joke like i've had that in in some of my projects where i'll fight to pull out a joke and the producer's like the joke gets a laugh every time why are you pulling out i'm like because if you pull it out, the next joke, which is better, it gets a bigger laugh. Rhythm and cadence is so important. So yeah. someone like Dave Chappelle, right down to when he takes a drag of his cigarette, like that's calculated to make the joke hit with maximum effect, right? So I, I can't imagine just sitting there with raw footage going over it and over it and keeping it snappy. Like that's yeah. so hard. Well, stand-ups in particular, like the best stand-ups, like, like you just said, it like everything they do looks effortless and looks like, like the best stand-ups look like they're just coming up with this shit off the top of their head. You know, but that is so crafted. Yeah, if they're going up and they're doing five sets a night in one club and then running across town and doing another five sets. Like, they do it hundreds of times before it's ready to go into their special. Yeah, and the closest I've ever gotten to that is just when I when I tour a film and we do, you know, a Q&A at the end. Like, by the time I'm done a film uh, circuit tour of, 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 of Q&As, like, I know what stories work. And I know which ones will get a laugh and kind of how to tell them. It's almost like my version of a, of a, of a tight 10. Um, and especially if, I'm, if I travel with another actor or something and we've done a couple together, we start knowing how to play out each other or who tells what part of what story. Um, but nothing close to what these, what these people are, are, are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. No, these, this is like the dream team of comedy, really, going at it. This is like Jordan and Barkley and Magic all on the same team in Barcelona in 92. Yeah, and catching lightning in a bottle. You know? That's the best way to put it. Yeah, because it's the kind of thing where I'm sure while they were... And I'm sure even while they were making it, they're just like, I think it's good. Like, what we're making is weird. Uh, you know, it's it's a weird little movie, but I think it's good. And it, and just in the editing room, it must have just been... I, I imagine, too, it's like... 
if you think about the kind of footage they were getting back, the studio or whoever's paying for this, the dailies, they're probably looking at them going, what the fuck are you shooting? Like, it looks like chaos. Is there a story here? Is there anything? I would love to see the notes on this film, whatever the studio was telling them they couldn't do. Yeah. What did they not get that let them get away with? I think they were very calculated, and it's like, you ask for ten so you can get one. It's like, we're going to make five dick jokes so that we can get this one dick joke in there. Like, it must have been so absurd what they couldn't get into this. We would do that on Baroness Von Sketch Show, uh, and, and I called it the lightning rod, where it's like, you'd always put in something that you knew the broadcaster was going to tell you had to pull out, uh, and you only put it in there to protect the thing you really wanted to keep. Right. So you can have that argument. It's like, well, okay, fine, but we want it. Can we keep this? It's like, fine, 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 but you got to get rid of that. And every now and then, the lightning rod would slip by, and they wouldn't tell you to take it out. And it's just like, wait a minute, we're allowed, we're gonna keep that in? Nobody's, did, nobody's did, stopping did, us. Didn't when you were making Wipeout? Didn't. In Wipeout, we did that all the time. No, no, but they didn't even care for like the last. The problem was, yeah. Well, we realized that show was not gonna be renewed. Wipeout Canada, when they just stopped giving us any kind of notes or any filtering, we're like, they're letting everything get by. Oh, that's a bad sign. Yeah, like they're canceling us. <laughs> they stopped caring. <laughs> so. But, I do think of Canadian TV as so much more uh, liberal than American TV. What is it that they kind of really, like, keep you from trying to get in there? Uh, on Baroness? I'm trying to think what it was. There wasn't much. Like, we got... The, the, what was amazing about Bar- the Baroness situation was that when we did the first season, it kind of just... It was a summer... It was, I don't think they knew if it was going to be a hit or... They did not know it was going to be a hit. They just... You know, they were giving these, these you know, four ridiculously talented writer-performers kind of a shot at doing their thing. Uh, it was a summer show mm-hmm. that, uh, six episodes, and so they kind of let us do our thing and didn't really, they gave us some notes here and there, but not much, and they just kind of let us make the show we wanted to make. That sounds so much fun. And then when it was a hit, and then when the second season came around, they tried to start giving us more notes, yeah. and we kind of push, push back and we're like, well, actually, I th- we think what worked the first time around was the fact that you let us do our own thing and you trusted us and we're not necessarily trying to push it any further than we did the first season. So maybe just let it... They were never... I don't. I remember like the CBC's relationship with, with them whenever there was a note that we bumped on. Um, it was always really, really well... There was a lot of respect going on where they always would... more More often than not, we got to do what we wanted to do. We might have to like compromise a little bit, but I don't remember there ever being like a like a sketch. They're just like you can't even do this sketch, um, because they want. Because part of it was like the response we got to that show was pushing the envelope and and kind of doing some things that were kind of risque for that sort of television at the time. You got to set a precedent in the first season, so it gave you a lot of leeway for the second. Well, that's just it, and we and we were able to say, "It's like, look, the show was the hit because we kind of tackled some of these subjects, and if we pull back, people are going to think we got soft." Mm-hmm. And in fact, we kind of got to push it a little further to some degrees. But what was what was magic about that show too is that you know we'd often shoot seventy, you know, twenty five percent more sketches than we had room for on broadcasts, so we just had a really like, a lot of room to just miss, which was great. We could take some big swings, and if something didn't work, we just never had to show it to anybody. You know? It wasn't like when you're doing a scripted comedy, and the story has to make sense, and you just cut, you can't cut a scene because it's bad. So we could just cut a whole thing, and it's like, yeah, nobody ever needs to see it. It wasn't our, our best material. 
Uh, and then when we were in the, and we, when we got to like, you know, structuring the show, uh, and kind of creating what we call like the mixtapes and like, well, what's the, what's the best like open, what's the best like first track. It was the closest thing I remember to when I used to make mixtapes in high school. I'm just going like, what's the flow and how do you, and you gotta, if you do that sketch and you know, you gotta start with a soft in on the next one. Um, gotta grab their attention. Then you gotta slow down. Then that's you just it. it back up. It yeah. was a real thing. Like how we constructed those episodes was really all about that. And it was this beautiful process that they kind of like decided on the first season was that we had all these, we had all these like cork boards with just like little index cards. Those? All, just like that cork board. Yeah. We're in my screening room office. Uh, and so, Everyone had like a photo, like a, a grab from one of the sketches, and um, and what was really amazing was when it came down to like, well, what's not going to make the cut? What's going to get lost out? We they kind of made this decision to never ever talk, never say they didn't like a sketch because usually someone loved it, like someone on the four loved it or someone on the, on the on the creative team loved it, and so it was always like, let's just talk about the ones we love so much, and so the ones that aren't loved as much will just automatically fall to the bottom and no one ever needs to like trash a sketch that didn't work. So it was just kind of like the cream rising to the top, literally. And so all the like, okay sketches just naturally fell out the wayside and nobody ever had like really had to have their feelings hurt that I was aware of. Yeah. That's a great system because sketch comedy is just so hit or miss. Right. And it's like, you have to produce funny things and you have to turn it out so quickly. Like, I love SNL, but, you know, every episode, they get that one or two sketch in there that really wasn't polished, right? And it's yeah. Like, like, oof. Oof. Yeah. You know, it would have been better to have a shorter show than to get that stinker in there because it leaves such an impression. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's a blessing to have, um, to be able to just, like, find it, right? Like, even when we did um, How to Plan an Orgy, like, the first cut of that movie was two and a half hours long. How long did it end up being? Like, 90 like, I cut an hour out of it. Was it painful to cut it, or did it make sense? It's like, this this just doesn't flow. There was a couple little storylines. It's just, like, I overshot things. There was just moments that we didn't need. And then some of it was just like that. Like, we just... I had this, like, tremendous group of really funny, amazing people, and it was a lot of, like, what this was. We're just like, let's just roll, throw another line. Let's just try that. And so, you know, the first cut was just, like, the kitchen sink overindulgent cut. So it naturally needed to lose at least a half an hour... But then it was just being brutal and going, what, how do we make this tight and as funny as can be? And, and I think, you know, there's definitely some jokes and some moments I miss. But at the same time, you know, my experience in, in screening that movie in festivals was just, it was just a, a laugh fest for the audiences. And so I don't regret losing any of it. I have like a movie mush brain where I see hundreds of movies a year. So it's like, if you ask me what I saw yesterday, I can't tell you. But I do remember from How to Plan an Orgy, just it had a big cast and they had great chemistry. And you just like being with the people, which yeah. is kind of like the same vibe I get from Anchorman. It's just like you love seeing these people bounce off of each other, which is like so hard to do. That's just it. That, and that was another one for me. Like that, that was my lightning in a bottle movie where it just felt like what like just the energy of the cast was so great. Everyone got along so well and everyone was there for each other. Like everyone, nobody was trying to, even though it was this big cast full of really funny people, nobody was ever trying to win the scene. It was always like, oh, this moment's yours. When you have that many actors in a cast, that's a very hard thing to accomplish. No, but everyone knew that because I think everyone knew that they were going to have that moment in the, in the movie somewhere. And they're like, no, this one's yours and let's set you up. 
Like, let's do what we can to support your moment because my moment will come over here. Uh, and it was a real just gift watching everyone be so generous with each other that way. Uh, but yeah, it's just those th- I think it's just those rare things. Like, like you said, the like comedy is so hard that when it works, it's almost like it's almost weirder than when it doesn't. Because it's like, you're like, how people would ask, like, I don't, I don't know. How, I, I personally don't know how to write a joke. You know, I don't know. I I can't sit down and just like formulate a joke to be funny. Like my humor comes out of just reaction and situation, you know, and I think that's the best, the best and randomness, right? Something that you're not expecting is what makes me laugh the most. Like those like, we already talked about them, but those moments when Fred Willard's and his son, the first one where he's just, they're talking about the German porn is like, hi, I get it. And it's like, well, I'll see you later, sister Margaret. It's like, Jesus. That was priceless. Like, Like that one had to be first. That's just it, right? And it's and it's because the funniest part of that came at the in the very last word. It was just such a great tag to that joke. Yeah, and I, I want to know, like, did they sit there in the script and say we're going to put in three scenes of him talking on the phone, or did they do it once and he was so funny they just kept going with it and putting it back in the film? I wonder that too. It's just like, well, like, and and you wonder too because it could have just been like, well, we'll start the scene and Fred Willard will be just talking on the phone. Just Fred say whatever you want to say. And so the first time they do it, it was probably that. It was like, yeah, he just starts. And it's like every so now it was like every single time we started seeing with Fred Willard, it's like get on the phone. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. They, they knew where they where they had their yeah their strong suit. Yeah, it's all you never know, right? It's one of those things where you're like, oh, what a brilliant joke, but it could be just as simple as that. Like they were just in there and Fred's on the phone, and it's like he just did it before the scene started. Yeah, we did that in Marinette too. The girls would always. Um, just start having a random conversation as the scene started. And some, some of the lines were just made no sense where they were coming from. But it, it, but it created this world where you're like, what was the conversation they were having before that we stepped into this? Yeah, that, that would give me so much anxiety. Like, I need order. I need to know you're going to be here and you're going to say this. I can't imagine just getting on set. I know they go through the script first and then they start freewheeling. But just trying to, like, keep up, keep up with these comedy legends. Like, I, I'd be so intimidated at first. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's just one of the, I think what, what the best comedy people I've had the, my, the fortune to work with just are really good at disarming you, though. Like, they, you know, they think they're aware of who they are and their standings, but I think they do a really good job of just making, just, like, let's play. Like, they just want to play and they want to be funny. And so they're also, a lot of them, although, you know, comic people are often very dark, too. Oh yeah, you know, but uh, like they're often they're the most humble people who just want to laugh and they don't care whose idea it is, because uh, you're just gonna make them look better anyway, right? So they kind of they do a really good job of disarming you the instant you meet them, um, just so that you instantly feel like oh we can chat and be cool. I don't have to be weird around you. Um, but I think there's there's always the opposite of that too. Where people, I've heard horror stories of some other big actors that friends of mine have worked with where it's just like, that's sad. Yeah, but, I'm sure but, ego comes into it a lot. Ego, yeah. Um, but, uh, but when you look at this, you're like, you can't imagine anyone on this movie had an ego. You can, it just must have, like, I, can you imagine shooting that, like the brawl scene? Like, just all the people that are in that scene? Well, well they were all on the come up, right? Like, uh, I guess maybe Vin, that was like Peak Vince Vaughn. I don't know if he did things like Wedding Crashes yet. 
But um, those guys, like, Will Ferrell wasn't Will Ferrell yet. It wasn't probably for another couple of years before he was, like, the top earner in Hollywood. Wedding Crashers wouldn't have been out yet. Um, uh, ben Stiller was our, had already had a career. Like, I think... Yeah, he was doing something about Mary. I that was already done by this yeah. point. Yeah. So, but of a lot of it, too, is just one of those things where it's like, once they get rolling, and it's like, hey, who wants to call who? And also, Apatow and Stiller have such a, a history with each other. Um it was one of those things where I'm sure they're just like, hey, who's in... And they shot this in L.A., I'm sure. Uh, and it's just like, hey, who can pop by for a day? Yeah, who like, wouldn't want to be on that set, right? That's, and you hear, so who's in it? Yeah, and probably people, I'm sure, like, their friends are calling them up saying, you've got to put me in the movie somewhere. And it's like, I don't know, Jack. All we got left is a guy that gets hit by a burrito and kicks a dog off a bridge. Do you really want to do that part? He's like, yes. <laughs> and that's how you get Jack Black. <laughs> I, I, that part where he punted the dog into the river, I couldn't believe the movie did that because it was so mean-spirited. Like, this movie's a lot of things, but it's not mean. But then it recovered from that, right? And it gives you the feel-good moment. But I'm like, that really does not fit the tone of this movie. No. But it also, it works because it's so devastating to him. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that scene of him in the phone booth, just wailing and crying. I hope someone had some hot lemon tea ready for him afterwards. Like, I can't imagine what that does to your voice, all that scream crying. Oh, and the same as Steve, Steve Carell, too. All the loud noise and the screaming he does in this movie. Oh, so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I forgot. I don't think I've seen this since I saw it in the theaters. How? I don't know why, because it was, I think it was a movie that I appreciate more now, because I think at the time I thought it was funny, but it didn't hit me in the way, just watching it today, I kind of just let myself go, and really just leaned in and enjoyed it. I was worried it was going to be more dated in a bad way. Oh, not at all. Yeah, it, it totally holds up. It didn't feel dated at all. I mean, part of that is that it was a play on the 70s already, but like the, the jokes and the comedy, like it's probably more relevant in 2021 than it was in 2004. I think that's what it might be. Like, like just that whole diversity joke is like, what he thinks is an old wooden ship. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, the movie's, the movie's so smart because it never makes, uh, Will Ferrell's character, Ron Burgundy, it never makes them the hero. It clearly tells you like the women are right. And these guys are dinosaurs and their time is past them. Right. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, apologize. It doesn't try and like, Say, well, we're going to, you know, make him heroic here. It's like, no, these guys are assholes. They're doing the wrong thing, and we're laughing at them. It was pretty straightforward there. Yeah, it's, it's funny because even, like, his story at the end, like, he, you know, he doesn't really do anything to deserve the chance to go back to report on the news at the end. It's not like he does anything to, to, to earn that. He just gets the call. But when he gets there, he has that cho- that great choice and even makes fun of his, like, this is hard. Like save the girl or or go after the dream job. Yeah, it, this is a very well written movie. Like structurally, everything holds up pretty well. But the one thing that I, I would nitpick at is when he's at the bar and he admits it's like she's better than me, right? Yeah. But I don't really understand what made him came to come to that realization in the end. I think I I uh, that doesn't butt me as much because I think I think the fact that he screwed up the way because of how he screwed up. That and they set it up early in the movie with the question mark. That great joke where it's like, "I'm Ron Burgundy." Yeah, perfect setup. That's just it. It's like it's a funny joke. It plays as a joke, but it's also letting us know if it's on the teleprompter, Ron will read it. So when she feeds the "Go fuck yourself, San Diego," uh, that's a mistake she would never make because she's smart enough to not read 
it, to probably notice a mistake on the teleprompter. Not that we ever see that moment in the movie, but I think maybe that's what he's referring to. Or just that she cared more. Like, for the moment that she got there, they were trying to saddle her with cat shows and other terrible jobs where she just wanted to do real news where Ron didn't give a shit. Yeah, and again, that's a commentary on just the modern-day news anchor who looks like a Barbie or a Ken doll, and they're not really about anything but, you know, making sure their lighting is good and their nose is powdered, right? Yeah, that's that whole opening sequence of him getting ready to do the news. Yeah, these are the people who are educating our opinion on the world, and they really, like, don't have an opinion themselves, which is, again, why this movie is so smart. Yeah, well, even that that opening, there's this billboard that he runs through, and it says, if Ron Burgundy says it, it's the truth. Are they, we even had the the opening, the the, vo- the narrator makes a comment about that too. It's like, back in the day when it was on the news, you believed it. Yeah, and again, this is 16 years before the fake news era, right? Right, but this is, all, but this is during the era of like when Fox News started to get made fun of. Uh, and because this was also like, because the Bush era was like that, like the Fox, Fox calling Bush, right? And just uh, that stuff that was going on at that time. Uh so they were kind of poking fun of the news a little bit there, but it's nowhere. But again, like you look at how things have changed since then. It's like, Oh my, like this is tame. so much worse. Yeah. It's so much worse. It was just horrifying. You know, when you think of what's, well, it's going to get better. And it's like, you know, and, and you have a president like Obama comes in and it's like, and of course the only way it goes is that you have to like go so hard in the other direction to kind of balance it back. I guess, because the world just can't progress it. Yeah, our, at any our, rate. Our social values have changed so much since this came out. The way we consume news, our opinion of the news, the way we're divided is so much different. Like, I think you can make a legitimate case. You could reboot this now. Like, I wouldn't want to see these guys come back for part three, but just to do a take of Anchorman in the BuzzFeed fake news social media era, I would love to see that. Yeah, there's going to be, there's got to be a, a story of that at some point. Yeah. Coming down the pike. So what about you? You want to watch more uh, more comedies of this area with these people? Yes. I think you'd like it. Step Brothers is one. Have you seen Step Brothers? Yes. The only person that's missing from this is John C. Riley. Yeah, that would be too perfect. <laughs> yeah, because he John C. I'm trying to think if you know John C. Riley from anything. He's one of my favorites. Uh, Talladega Wreck-It Nights. Wreck-It Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, you know Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah. He's the voice of Wreck-It Ralph. But Talladega Nights is another one. Um, oh, there's so many Step Brothers. So much good stuff. Because you don't really... Do you know... What, what, do you, what have you seen that Will Ferrell is in? Elf. Elf. Oh, that's a big one. Elf is so good. Yeah. My girlfriend just puts it on loop this time of year. We're probably going to see it a hundred times between now and Christmas. That, that's probably one of those movies that I've watched... Like, not every year, but almost every year. It's so good. He turned down like a boatload of money to do the sequel. Uh, Will Ferrell because he just didn't because he thought again like he thought they captured lightning in a bottle and was like let's not wreck it what point in his career did they offer him that I think he's been offered a sequel to that multiple times and now it's too late it's you know it's far he'd be it'd have to be his son now or something yeah 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 which could work right Um, but uh, but I think like a couple years like five years later and then ten years later but if you look it up there's famous stories of him turning down like 20 million dollars to star in that sequel. And he's just like, there's, I don't want to do it. Like, I think it's probably the script wasn't, no, I think he said the script wasn't good. 
I may be convinced to give up my pinky if I could see footage of him doing all his Will Ferrell nonsense with James Conn and how James Conn really reacted. <laughs> it's true. The outtakes of that movie. Yeah. But even you look at like Tim Robbins in this movie. Like you don't necessarily associate Tim Robbins with comedy. No. But he, but he is a funny, funny dude uh, when he gets to do it. Yeah, I wish he had a bigger role. Again, like the way I love just seeing Vince Vaughn, the way he was holding his cigarette. I love seeing uh, Robbins just like had a pipe all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just those little details and the, the way they styled his hair. It's just, again, I would watch a spinoff on that character. Like everyone in this movie was so interesting. That's just it. Well, they just, and they let them all build these little worlds around their characters. Like that, yeah, the Vince Vaughn news team just coming out on bicycles. Where were they coming from? <laughs> What's the story there? Yeah, and just pulling chains and bats and whatever. What was Will Ferrell's character fighting with? Like, he looked like a bedpost. Yeah. Yeah, or like a yeah, it looked like a bedpost or like the end of a table, like a table corner. <laughs> Who made that decision? Rick, where did you get the grenade? <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous fun. There was a trident at somebody. Yeah, you killed the guy with a trident. I did. Yeah, it turned into Spartacus. It did turn into Spartacus. Some guy was on fire at one point. Uh, does this make you, are you going to watch the sequel? Oh, I have to. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as possible. I'm watching it tomorrow. Yeah. Go. I think I believe it's also on Netflix. Uh, just go in with low expectations and you'll probably have a good time. Yeah. I just want to spend more time with the characters. Like I, I, I don't expect anything's going to make me laugh that much, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts on Anchorman. It's a certified unassailable classic. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought you would like this one. Uh-huh. But I thought Mummy and Annie might not. Yeah. I don't think my wife would uh, would appreciate the jokes as much as I do. Uh-oh. That's okay. That's okay. That's why I uh, I got this one over here to watch big, fun, yeah. dumb movies with me. I think you married a monster then. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> she's gonna. He- she's not going to hear this. She doesn't listen I to joke, my podcast. No, that's okay. She she and I are well aware that we have a, we have a very specific Venn diagram where our tastes meet, and it's okay, because it means when I'm off doing this, she can be watching Grey's Anatomy, and, and that's okay, because I don't need to see season 18 or 19 yeah. or whatever the end of that show. I'm sitting here wearing a Predator ring, and my girlfriend can't watch anything scarier than Goosebumps, so same situation. You get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. And as fun. always, go fuck yourself, San Diego. Let's all go to the Thanks for joining us for Anchorman. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter at Lon Jeremy and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.